Welcome to The Learning Curve, where we serve up straight talk about the nation's hottest education stories and talk with authors, thinkers, people who are having an impact on the field. Today, I'm here with my co-host, Bob Bowden. Hello, Bob. How you doing? Uh, you know, it's not every day we see, but we popped up on the Choice Media Education Calendar, a Kara Kandel event. Look at this, November 7th, see Kara Kandel and join School Choice for New Hampshire on November 7th for an event called Best Practices in Chartered Public Schools, of course, where the great Dr. Kandel will be there to talk to people and sign books and stuff like that. So Thank I wanted you to plug so much for event. reminding me of my calendar. For a moment, I was really confused, Bob, but that's super helpful. No, we're, I'm really excited to be heading up to to speak at this event with the Commissioner of Education, no less. So it's very exciting. Yeah, well, um, you'll, be to, there, you'll be there like bathing in presidential candidates in New Hampshire, crisscrossing. It'll be like you'll have to scream above all of the other presidential candidates who are having town hall meetings in New Hampshire. You know what, my friend? I got a great set of lungs. I can scream pretty loudly. So uh, watch out, New Hampshire. Anyway, so we've got we've got a really um, a great show today with um, with guest author Natalie Wexler, um, who we'll talk to in just a little bit. But first, not to be overlooked, we've got a few um, stories of the week story stories of the week stories of the day to talk about. The first one here, oh Chicago! My, I lived in Chicago for many years, Bob. I went I to graduate Chicago. school in Chicago. It's a I'm city a that I dish, love. Deep dish pizza uh, enthusiast. A, a lot of carbs in that deep dish pizza and maybe a little bit of a heart attack too, but it is delicious. Okay. Um, but what's not delicious is what <laughs> is just continuing to happen in the public schools of Chicago, some of the most troubled public schools in, in the entire country. And here we go again, as if they don't remember the lessons of the past, three Chicago unions, not just, not just one this time, but three, the Chicago's teachers union, the school support staff, which comprise a separate union and Chicago Park District workers are all threatening to go on strike together on October 17th if uh, if Governor, I'm sorry, Mayor Lightfoot uh, and the city don't reach a contract deal by that date. I mean, people, <laughs> come on. We're talking not only if this happens, 360,000 kids in the Chicago public schools who will be out of school, many of whom are already far behind in school. And then not only that, parents, uh, will have to struggle to find where they're going to put their children for that day because many of them, when in the past, when the Chicago's Teachers Union have gone on strike, have gone to be served by the Park District. But the Park District this time won't be there either. So another case of adults putting themselves first, Bob. I, I think I probably know what you think about this one. <laughs> you should just do my opinions, too. It would be more efficient. No, you probably do. <laughs> well, first of all, I mean, you know, it's hard for me just to keep when there's a mayor in Chicago not named Daly or Emanuel. It's confusing to me. I have like, wait, there's somebody else now. I, yes. I hope for her. Yeah, OK, cool so this is a labor friendly progressive mayor, Lori Lightfoot. So it'll be interesting to see how she how labor friendly she is when it comes to a, <laughs> a teacher strike. And, you know, for those in the way back machine. I remember 2012, an eight-day strike in Chicago. Right. They ended up raising the average teacher pay 17.6% over four years. Emmanuel, Rahm Emanuel, the mayor at the time, was widely considered to have completely capitulated because as the former as the former uh, Barack Obama uh, 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 
staff. Uh, Chief uh, of staff. Was I'm sorry. Chief of staff. Yes. Uh, you know, that he got a call. It was right before the election in 2012. It was the Mitt Romney, Obama reelection election. And that, you know, widely suspected that Obama called him up and said, listen, get this thing done, get it off the table. And so that's why it was, uh, you know, so uh, well, such a capitulation. And then in more recently, they almost struck in 2015 and they ended up giving them this this deal to promise a cap on charter schools in Chicago, which was dumbfounding to me and also even more infuriating. And, uh, you know, uh, and here's my one rule about teacher strike media coverage. This is the thing to look for. Everyone can get a pencil and write this down. If you ever have a teacher strike in a place with below average teacher salaries, like we had West Virginia, we had Oklahoma, we had Arizona, every news story will say, how much lower than the national average the teacher salaries are in that place. If you have a teacher strike in a place with a higher than the national average teacher salary, like Chicago, like we had Seattle a few years ago, no news story will talk about how the average teacher salary is higher than the national average. So that's what the media does. They will always only report a comparison to national teacher salary averages if this particular place where the strike is happening is below the average. Yeah, and nor do they usually report the the really devastating impacts on families and kids here, the longer that kids are out of school. But what we can hope, and I think is happening, and we saw this to your point in 2012, is that increasingly, I don't think the public is tolerating these strikes very, very often. I think it's, they're, they're, they're getting tired of them. So we'll see where this one lands. Hopefully they get to a contract first, but a contract that um, that is fair on both sides. Um on to the next story from Education Next. And this one, I got to tell you, Bob, I like this one a lot. So support builds for making the SAT untimed for everyone. So, wow. I mean, higher ed and testing in the news quite a bit these days. And um, I, I was trying to think back to when I took the SATs, the GREs, everything. And, and when was the last time I had to take a timed test or in my job, complete? certainly have to complete things under time constraints, but but never with a stopwatch and to answer these questions in, in 50 minutes type of thing. So I was really interested in this story because on the one hand, it seems like a no-brainer that we should give kids um, more time, all kids more time. Um, on the other hand, and there's there's also this component of the fact that uh, the, the article discusses the fact that so many um, parents and kids have become really savvy, especially middle and upper middle class parents and kids have become really savvy about about getting themselves more time on the test, exactly. whether or not they might really have the needs that dictate they should they should get more time. I saw this myself as a professor all the time. I was constantly fascinated by how really savvy kids were at advocating for themselves. And I mean, they would come up to me on the first day of class and say, Professor, I'm going to need more time on my test. And I'm looking yeah. at them saying, but I don't give time tests. That's not that's not what we do in this class. But it's a it's a really interesting problem. And I have to say that I would be fine with saying, take the darned SAT, see where you land, let's do away with time constraints. What do you say? Yeah, so I, uh, I, I, I think that, first of all, let's, let's admit what is really true, which is the higher and higher percentage of special needs students begin to make this claim that uh, they're a special needs student, they need to have more time on the test for this special case. And as I think more and more of their brothers and sisters saw that, you know, it... it, 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 it I wonder who the first person was to say, we need a time stop on this. I mean, when I remember taking the SAT, I remember the biggest stress for me was the speed with which I needed to answer everything. It was, 
you know, and, and to your point, exactly right. I mean, apart from, you know, a game show like Jeopardy, where buzzer management is a key thing to whether you win on Jeopardy with Alex Trebek, <laughs> most things in life are not tied. And that's, that's, that's a show, of course. That's done to make it more dramatic. So It's a fantastic show. It's, it's uh, you know, and, and our, our best wishes to uh, Mr. Trebek and his health yep. problems. But that said, uh, it's, yes, it's, I wonder how this got started. It is not a, uh, in normal life, and now, now that's, is it to, to, to which you refer in normal life, this is not a normal component of achieving something, making sure you can do whatever the thing is super fast. Now, there obviously has to be, I would think, some sort of outside limit, but... It certainly doesn't need to feel like it felt when I took the test, but way many decades ago where I, I felt like I just had to rush really fast. Yeah, slowly and slowly, the SAT is is evolving, I think. Now, this next story, I mean, this is just this is just great. Out of the Las Vegas Review Journal, no bad principles in Clark County, evaluators say. So Clark County, uh, home to Las, Las Vegas is home. Um has consistently had more than 101 and two star schools. So those are the lowest performing schools, according to the state's accountability system. Yet in years, not a single school principal has been labeled ineffective by the by the evaluators, by the evaluation system. I mean, this is just, you know, we see the same things with teacher evaluations all the time, which is why I would argue, you know, 2009, great push for teacher evaluations and tying teacher performance to teacher pay. And what we found was uh, it didn't matter how many effective, ineffective, or developing teachers you had, they were by and large being rated as, hey, this person's doing great. I, um, as with many things in education, I struggle to think of another profession where we hand out gold stars so easily. Uh, please tell me if you know of one. But this one is just, I mean, in, in a place where so many schools have been designated low performing, to say that all of the leaders are doing just fine has to give one pause. My, fa- my favorite part of the story was not just that of the more than 300 principals, no one was rated as ineffective, but that of the three, of the more than 300, only one was rated anything but the top rating. Like one out of 300 got the second lowest rating. Everyone else, 209, was more than 300, got the top rating. So that to me was, and and it, it speaks to me to one of the least talked about, the most glaring contradictions of teachers unions. They'll tell you virtually no tenured teachers are incompetent. You know, you'll you'll say, oh look, it's uh, less than one tenth of one percent of tenured teachers are ever fired for cause in your state or your district, and they'll say, yeah, that shows you how all these teachers are great. That's actually fantastic because the tenured teachers are all so awesome. And then, but then if you ever actually do find a problem in a school. They're like, oh, these principals are terrible. Oh, the principals aren't doing their job. Oh, the principals are ineffective. That's why there's uh, that uh, somebody, you know, the school is being run poorly. And it's the same people who were all of these perfect teachers that were so competent, then sometimes become, according to the union, the principals that they blame for if there's ever a problem. But absolutely uh, easy to blame it on the principal. I, I mean, unless you live in Las Vegas, I guess. Now, time 
time for our newsmaker interview. Natalie Wexler joins us. She's author of The Knowledge Gap, The Hidden Cause of America's Broken Education System and How to Fix It, which came out this year, 2019. The book focuses on the lack of content in the elementary school curriculum and its connection to what's commonly known as the achievement gap, the gap in test scores between affluent and low-income students. I'll give you one other uh, plug here. Natalie also is the co-author of a book called The Writing Revolution, a guide to advanced thinking through writing in all subjects and grades. Natalie Wexler, thank you very much for being our guest. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. All right. So why don't we kind of begin with, uh, I guess, the the basic, at least the what I what I was able to glean from the basic premise of the book. And tell me, correct me if I'm wrong, but that you talk about a um, well, a shift from what had been teaching reading, focusing on actual content, content that students might find interesting or compelling about whether it's about history or the arts or current events. But kids would read about these various subjects that were interesting. And then in that process, they would also learn reading comprehension. And there was a shift, you argue, where teachers instead starting to spend more t- started to spend more time on the reading comprehension skills themselves rather than the focus on the underlying content. Do I have that right? Well, sort of. Yeah. I mean, um, so there's been this idea uh, that you can teach reading comprehension for a long time now. I mean, there were back in the 50s, there would be uh, reading textbooks that would have uh, comprehension questions after passages. But what's happened in the last 20 to 30 years is we've spent more and more time on reading and a lot of that time spent on reading comprehension skills and strategies. And that's been partly driven by high stakes reading tests, standardized tests. And there've been some other factors as well. Um, But basically what's happened is reading and the reading comprehension skills and strategies has taken over more and more of the elementary school day. And so there's much less time for things like social studies, science, um, the arts, things that actually could build the kind of knowledge and vocabulary that kids really need if they're going to understand sophisticated text. For those who may not understand what you just said about uh, teaching reading comprehension skills, you mean the kind of thing where teachers just assign any reading text and then say, uh, basically drill kids on what's the primary concept here. And then they are taught essentially how to just quickly glean the key information and that 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 reading comprehension skill itself has been elevated to some sort of place higher than the content. Yeah, that's definitely true. I mean, the skills have been put in the foreground and they are they, they usually refer to as skills and strategies. Those two terms usually are used interchangeably, but they could be things like finding the main idea of a text or making inferences or determining the author's purpose or um, comparing and contrasting. There's a whole bunch of them. But I think an important point to realize is that these are not skills in the sense of a skill like riding a bike or playing tennis or even decoding words, matching the sounds to letters. They're not directly teachable and generally applicable. So if if you know a lot about a, a topic, let's say you know a lot about baseball and you read a passage describing a baseball game, you're going to have a much easier time finding the main idea of that passage than if you read a passage about molecular biology and you don't know anything about molecular biology. So it's not like just 
teaching kids how to find the main idea of a simple story is necessarily going to help them when they get to high school or college and they have a much more sophisticated text they're trying to find the main idea of. Yeah, Natalie, and you know, I'm really interested to know um, sort of how we got here. So uh, certainly we've heard this argument before, although I have to say you do just a phenomenal job of capturing it and illuminating it. But this idea that when we don't expose kids to um, to academic content and we're only focusing on these skills that you mentioned that sound a lot more like test-taking skills, that one of the things we're doing is failing to give kids, especially kids who don't come from, for example, upper-middle-class homes, the kind of of exposure and access to academic knowledge that other kids are getting by default, perhaps because they have more educated parents or parents who have had the privilege of an education, I would say. Um, can you tell us a little bit about this, this pendulum swing that is American education policy in this debate? And how have we gotten to this moment in time where, um, where you've been able to, again, locate the achievement gap as being in part based upon this, um, this emphasis on skills rather than content knowledge? Well, I think, yes, you're, you're right. I mean, and what the knowledge gap really refers to is that children, it's really not about race or income. It's really primarily about the level of education of parents, that those kids of well-educated parents are able to pick up a lot of knowledge outside of school, a lot of the kind of knowledge that will help them understand texts, in academic texts. And other kids really rely on school for that. And, uh, you know, if they don't get it there, then every year you wait to start building those kids' knowledge, the harder it is to narrow that gap. And the harder it is to narrow the gap between what you're go- they're going to be expected to know in high school and what they actually know. And I think that we have been a victim of our own good intentions, really. Um, there's, you know, the the high stakes reading and math tests that were ushered in uh, with No Child Left Behind in 2001 were intended to increase educational equity. And they did uncover a lot of inequities between demographic groups. But they had this side effect of um, in giving teachers, educators the impression that what they needed to do to boost those test scores and to create educational equity was to double down on these supposed reading comprehension skills and strategies uh, without realizing that the reason that, you know, little Jason chose B instead of C when he answered that question was not necessarily because he didn't understand main idea. It was because he didn't understand the passage, the reading passage on this on the test, and therefore could not demonstrate his skill at finding the main idea or whatever the question was asking about. And it's important to understand that the passages on standardized tests do not bear any relationship to what kids may have learned in school. They're not designed to. So they're really, they become tests of general knowledge. You describe what sounds to me like a very anti-education education ecosystem, if you'll pardon the oxymoron. And this is my uh, metaphor, but uh, that while... Uh, medical research, for example, learns something new, and then those drugs or procedures filter quickly to actual frontline doctors. You say that by contrast, cognitive research might learn something, but yet those kinds of improved techniques don't flow to the in the trenches teachers in the same way 
well that you say that it, it ought to or that it perhaps in other sectors. Is that right? Yes, although I have seen comment that even in the medical field, it's hard. It, it takes a while for these things to filter down to practitioners. But this is especially true in the area of education. And that's largely because uh, schools of education developed along a different path from the rest of academia. Um, they, they, they've been there's really been a communications gulf between a school of education and like the Department of Psychology on the same campus. And so what academic psychologists, cognitive psychologists have discovered about the learning process, that has really not penetrated the world of education. Um, and teachers, they may learn about developmental psychology in their education courses, but a lot of what they're learning in the eyes of um, cognitive psychologists is really antiquated and has been substantially modified by more recent research, and yet schools of education may be teaching that as gospel. So uh, teachers are largely unaware of a lot of this research that could actually really help them do their jobs. As a former professor in a school of education, I encourage you to write your next book on that topic, please. Thank you very much. Um, I'd like to turn for a minute. So teachers, obviously, having a very important role to play here. And um, I would venture to guess that a lot of teachers would agree with your assessment. I wonder if you can comment a little bit on the extent to which policy, uh, top-down education policy, has has um, made assumptions about what we should be teaching or how we should be teaching and to the extent to which that's had an impact. So you mentioned No Child Left Behind and some of the good intentions gone awry in implementation. But I'd love for you to talk to us a little bit about the Common Core era, which many of us were very excited about, not all of us, <laughs> pioneers, do, but many of us were very excited about years ago. But we've since seen, for example, a deterioration of, um, of the states that you know are opting into the testing batteries to park. Um, and we've seen a lot of states saying, okay, well, we're going to do something Common Core-like, but we're backing off a little bit and we're going to change our test. What do you think the Common Core era has to do with this renewed emphasis on skills? Well, it's kind of ironic. Um, I mean, the Common Core is widely misunderstood um, in a variety of ways, but a lot of people think it's a curriculum. And it's it's not. It doesn't specify any particular content. If you look at the standards themselves, it they appear to be a list of skills, maybe different skills from the ones that people were used to, but a skill, for example, of uh, connecting a claim to evidence in the text. Um, but the thing, it, it doesn't say what text, you know, and there, there's really very little specification of any particular texts. Um, but in the supplemental materials to the Common Core, there are a couple of statements that basically say, if you want kids to meet these more rigorous standards and to read more complex text and to read more nonfiction, you actually need to start building their knowledge in elementary school through a coherent content-focused curriculum. And the, the Common Core was really designed to move schools away from this skills-focused approach to reading comprehension and towards a focus on content. But very few people are aware of that language in the supplemental materials. They've looked at the standards. They thought, okay, Okay, we need to teach these standards, these skills, and um, and the pro one problem has been that in some places, at least, um, the the me what me the message that has come through about the Common Core is that kids should be reading more nonfiction and more complex text, even in elementary school, and in many places that that has been married to this skills-focused approach, so that 
they'll give kids complex nonfiction and they'll teach them, you know, nonfiction text features that they'll teach them how to recognize a glossary or, or what a caption is. And the theory is that if you have, if you're able to do those things, you'll be able to apply those skills to read any nonfiction text. And the problem is that nonfiction assumes even more background knowledge than simple fiction does. So those skills are even less likely to help kids understand what they're trying to read if it's nonfiction. So, you're, so it's, I guess starting with NCLB, No Child Left Behind, and then amplified by Common Core, the testing regimen, you're arguing sort of drove this new emphasis toward teaching things like reading skills and to what you just referred, introducing texts like earlier that are more complicated to younger and younger kids, like elementary school kids. And I'm just wondering if, you know, if that, to what degree that just bores the hell out of some of these kids. And some of the teachers are told to say, uh, we don't care if they're not interested. You've got to force this stuff down their throats because it will help their test scores. Is that part of what you're saying? Um, I mean, that, that, may be happening in some places. I do want to clarify, though, first of all, this the skills and strategies focus existed before the Common Core. I mean, the, the Common Core may have exacerbated it in some places, but it's also in some places, uh, people did read that language in the supplemental materials. They did recognize that you need to start building kids' knowledge. And in those places, you know, we've seen just in the last few years, the, the rise of uh, content-focused English language arts elementary curriculum, which basically did not exist before. So, and if you use that kind of curriculum, kids get very engaged. They love learning stuff. Um, I, I've been in classrooms where kids are learning, you know, about Greek mythology and and the war, even the War of eighteen twelve, and are totally, totally fascinated by it. But, but did that coincide with the retreat of Common Core? No, I mean that is you know the way to meet the common core standards uh, is it, you know it may not happen at third grade when they start taking common core aligned tests because your kids may have learned all about Greek mythology but there's nothing about Greek mythology on the reading standardized reading test so they they, they may not have yet enough background knowledge and vocabulary to understand anything that's thrown at them but eventually you know if you keep building their knowledge, they will acquire a critical mass of knowledge and vocabulary that will allow them to, you know, they should be able to find the main idea of anything that's not too technical or abstruse. But I would say in classrooms that have not gotten that message, that are not using that kind of a coherent knowledge building curriculum, yes, it can be quite uh, boring and, and disengaging for kids to get complex nonfiction text thrown at them. I mean, there's one story in the book about um, when I was in a first grade classroom and a little girl had been given a text about Brazil to read and told to, you know, find the main idea and make inferences and draw conclusions. And she couldn't even read the words draw conclusions. She thought she was supposed to be drawing clowns, uh, which is what she was doing. But even if she had understood that she was supposed to be drawing conclusions, she'd never heard of Brazil. She couldn't even read the word. So it was a total waste of her precious time um, and, and certainly not, not a very engaging experience for her. Wow, that's that's a fantastic story. It makes my heart break just a tiny bit. Yeah, um, yeah. 
Kelly, I'm, I'm looking for you to give us um, a, a little bit of hope here, because clearly you said that there are schools out there that, that are doing this, that are doing good things. I don't know if you want to share with us information about whether or not those schools are predominantly in certain places in the country or in certain types of neighborhoods or certain types of school districts. But the other part of my question is, what tools do we have at our disposal to help districts and schools and educators understand um, understand exactly what this gap that you locate. Um, I know that folks like Johns Hopkins, to give them a little plug, have a really great project called the Knowledge Map, and they're embedded in certain districts here in the in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, where I am. Um, are there other initiatives, other other things that you would point to to say, and we might consider doing this? Yeah, I mean, well, one possibility, and this is a, a you know a, a much less labor intensive one than getting Johns Hopkins to come and do a knowledge map of your curriculum, although that is a great thing to do if you want to identify gaps. But uh, there's something called edreports.org, uh, which is an organization that rates different both literacy and math curricula for their alignment to the Common Core. And one of the considerations in um, the, on the literacy side uh, for alignment is how well they build knowledge. And so, you know, most of the commercially available, the, the ELA uh, curricula, the textbooks that have the biggest market share get very low ratings from ed reports and these new knowledge building curricula. And they're five or six of them now, maybe more, um, they tend to get highly rated by ed reports. So that is certainly a good place for, for anybody to start if you're looking for a good knowledge building curriculum. I, I do think ideally um, it's good. It's great to see these things in action. So if if you can find a school in your vicinity that is has been implementing one of the curricula for a couple of years, because the first year is probably not a good time to observe anything, um, to, to go and see it in action, um, that can be a very powerful experience for administrators, for, for teachers who may be somewhat wary of this very different approach uh, to reading comprehension. Um, but I talk to teachers who who have you know had their their minds changed by seeing how it's working and seeing how much teachers like it, how much students like it, and how much students are learning. Well, there it is, a little bit of hope. Oh, absolutely. And, I, you know, this is really spreading. It's not happening overnight, but there is more and more awareness of this problem, which, of course, is the first step. And more and more schools and school districts are adopting these new knowledge-building English language arts curricula. Our and listeners need not oh, – I'm sorry, go ahead, Kara. No, go ahead. Our listeners need not spend much time searching for the Natalie Wexler website because it's NatalieWexler.com. <laughs> right. And you can find her on Twitter at Nat Wexler. And she is the author of The Knowledge Gap. Natalie, thanks so much for your time today. We appreciate it. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Welcome back. And now uh, we have our tweet of the week. Tweet of the week coming from Politics K-12. And the tweet is that uh, at Secretary of Education Betsy DeVos says that since the U.S. Department of Education was founded 40 years ago, the achievement gap has not closed 
one bit. Now, it kind of uh, definitely gives you pause in the context of the great conversation that we just had with Natalie Wexler about our curriculum and the problems with our curriculum nationwide. Um, but the more interesting part of this tweet, I think, is that it comes with a lot of data to back it up. So a study out of Sanford, the um, Center for Education Policy Analysis, that does a really nice job. I would conv- I would encourage our listeners to go to this website, describing how the achievement gap has, it's so hard to wrap one's arms around this. It's just, it ebbs and flows over time. We see it close slightly in some places, um, and, and they might not always be the places that you think, but it's hard to, um, to say that we've really made any progress in the past 40 years in closing the achievement gap. And sadly, it's not even the progress that has been made in some places is because our um, low-income black and Hispanic students are doing better, which is great, but, um, but improvement across the board isn't going up. So that means that really the top tier of students isn't doing better either. So closing gaps, teeny, teeny, tiny bit, not acceptable 40 years on, um, continues to be a persistent problem. I mean, in fairness, there's no way to perfectly do a scientific study of like a nation without a federal department of a U.S. education department and nation with a U.S. Edu- federal department of education. So the, you know, that would be the scientific method. But I mean, please, if you look at well, the 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 SIG program, school improvement grants, in the waning days of the Obama administration, their own internal reviews found that those in grants had no effect on out- educational outcomes at all. This big federal program with with uh, all of these many millions of dollars thrown at it. And it just make me think, you know, just how much fun it would have been if Betsy DeVos in her confirmation hearing at the U.S. Senate would have kind of been like, actually, I don't think we should have a federal Department of Education. Like if or if someone would say that and, and, and the primal scream you'd likely hear from the now, let me remind you, though, that President Reagan ran on that very platform. And I think he sure believed he the Department of Education more than almost anybody else, because right oh. on the heels of his desire to get rid of the Department of Education, we got a nation at risk. So there yeah. you have it. Be be careful what you wish for. Right? He ran on cutting spending, too, overall overall spending. So, yeah. And so now we'll turn to my commentary of the week. And this is from my bud, Neil McCluskey, the Cato Institute. It's titled, Why Would a Libertarian Want School Choice Suppose Canned Peaches? And he's talking here about uh, people who are critical of private school choice because in their view, that's money going to religion. And this is what Neil writes. He says, suppose government forces everyone to pay for canned peaches because nutrition is crucial for the for uh, the body politic and everyone has to be treated equally. That's great for the people who loved canned peaches above all over all other foods. But what about people who prefer canned grapes or fruit salad or filet mignon or naan? Tough. Only the canned peach crowd is going to be fully satisfied, making them more equal than others. And that's just the start of the problem. Here's the best part. He writes, much more to the religious point, what about the people who are allergic to peaches? People whom the peaches actually hurt. And so this is his argument to say that if you you only use 
government money to subsidize secular education, then in his opinion, that is a form of that's a form of its own religion in a sense, and that that is actually damaging to religious families who want to pursue that kind of education. And that you know, once again, I'm in a situation here, Kara. I'm not personally religious at all, but I'm extremely sympathetic to the arguments of people who honestly believe that they should be able to educate their kids the way they want, not have their uh, religious mores contradicted by a government-paid establishment. And that's the argument Neil makes. And yeah, and um, as my mentor, Charlie Glenn, always taught me, no form of education is neutral, right? So when people uh, argue for public education has to have a monopoly, they often are making the assumption that somehow public education is neutral, is neutral in terms of values and morality that gets imparted to kids. Absolutely not the case. And also, um, I, I love, I love Neil's stuff and oof, canned peaches. Yeah. Yuck. We need, we need some fresh peaches. <laughs> no, I do love peaches though. And I think about Georgia whenever I have them, I'm like, when is the last go. time I was in Atlanta? Uh, general, general listeners, you've done it. You've actually reached the end of yet another Learning Curve podcast. High five yourself or your friend. Uh, thank you for listening. Uh, I want to tell you that next week we have Wilford McClay coming up, uh, currently the uh, Libby Blankenship Chair in the History of Liberty at University of Oklahoma. But more importantly than that, author of the new book on K-12 history. It's called Land of Hope, an Invitation to the Great American Story, our guest on next week's podcast, Wilford McClay. And apart from that, are you good, Kara? Everything good with you? Are you going to have a good weekend? Where, I'm going to have a great where weekend, you Bob. I'm in, Massachusetts. in Washington, D.C. until Friday, actually, oh, okay. and then back to Boston and looking forward to some nice fall weather and apple picking. I say, yeah, I'm um, about to Friday night. There's going to be uh, a I don't people may listen to this whenever they do, but uh, there's going to be a screening of Miss Virginia, the new film about Virginia Walden Ford and her fight for school choice in Washington, D.C., which should be super cool. It's that uh, there's going to be a national release. Everybody look for the Miss Virginia film, you know, in your local theater. I hear it's uh, great. I think it's going to be super cool. Uh, and so that's that's it for us uh, on behalf of the great Kara Kendall and of the Pioneer Institute and me, Bob Bowden of Choice Media. We'll see you next time. Until next week. 